I love dictionaries. So yeah, you keep asking questions and keep wanting to know things. I was in Afghanistan, but I was caring about the whole world. But again, there was a real issue or tension about being Irish. I liked rain from the childhood, still I do. Where I was born was near the sea, and where I live is near the sea. My name is uh, Haumayon. I came from Waterford, but I'm originally from Afghanistan. My name is Paul O'Grady, and I'm originally from Sligo. Nice to meet you. You too. This is the story of a meeting between two people from two different continents. Homayoun is a refugee and humanitarian worker from Afghanistan, and Paul is a professor of philosophy at Trinity College Dublin. They've been paired because they have something in common. In this conversation, they try to discover what it is. My name is Michelle Darcy. I'm an assistant professor in politics at Trinity. Welcome to the podcast Common Threads where we ask two people who have never met before to answer the question, what do we have in common? And in so doing, discover the common threads running through both their lives. Within 10 minutes of speaking to Hamayoun for the first time, I knew I would pair him with Paul. I knew they had something particular in common, but I also just had a feeling. I wanted to hear the conversation they would have. Homayoun took the bus from Waterford to meet Paul on a sunny day in June in my office in the centre of Dublin. After politely introducing themselves, they began first to speak of where they grew up. Okay, Paul, thanks very much. I have a couple of questions from you, if you don't mind telling me. Where did you grow up? So I grew up in uh, a town called Sligo. So Sligo is in the northwest of Ireland. It's a small town, it's about 20,000 people in it, and I was born in the 60s and then kind of grew up in the 70s. There's a lot of nature around, so there are beaches and mountains and sea. And at the time, it was kind of grey. It rained a lot. It just rained a lot when I was growing up. Now Sligo is a fairly cool place, so there's lots of music and there's lots of... Back then, it was it was kind of a bit more conservative as a place but there still was lots of music and my, my father was very much involved in traditional Irish music so I used to really enjoy him playing music. You said it was very conservative, yeah. what do you mean by that? So the society was very much dominated by Catholicism and it was a very strict form so they didn't really allow people be different or deviate in a way, there was a lot of kind of um, social pressure to conform but also there were there was just a lot of uh, in my memory a lot of mental illness in that there would be a lot of eccentric characters who you know we regard as kind of weird now we'd say ah they were they weren't well there was one guy who used to always dress up in military uniform he wasn't military but he would jump into traffic and direct traffic if he'd had to <laughs> right. you know he'd do this kind of stuff so there was always this kind of uh, eccentricity in the place as well a kind of oddness tell yeah. me tell me about where you came from i come from afghanistan oh. and i come from the uh, from the very northeast of afghanistan okay one district it's called rustak district mm. it's very close to a place which is very famous uh, where uh, Alexander the Great lived there. Mm. It's it's a beautiful city. It's famous for its sweetest grapes in the world. Right. My childhood was mostly within a family that was in the farm. So we had mm. orchards of berries and grapes and it was very green. And then we used to migrate to the farm during summertime. And then we spent the whole summer there. So we were listening to the sounds of birds in the nighttime. And I think it was very beautiful. Still, I can feel it sometimes, mm. especially when I close my eyes to give myself some kind of peace. I can straight away go into those childhood moments. Right. It sounds lovely. And when, what, what decade would, would you have been living there? I... I left from my birth to 2001. And because I don't know a lot about the history, but there, w there was a lot of conflict during those years, was there? 
I can remember the times when Russia uh, invaded Afghanistan and I was only a child. I could, uh, I could still uh, remember the tanks, big right. tanks driving through the villages mm. and the district center and they were throwing food from the tanks towards the children that they were greeting them on the road and the children were waving towards them mm. and I can remember lots of violence and the rockets and the bombs going over your head and oh, wow. and then I can at one time remember our kitchen was hit by a big rocket and then we woke up early morning went to the kitchen and we see the whole uh, roof has fallen down nearly 50 years that area has uh, experienced war and still it is there right wow and were you frightened during that period i wasn't very much frightened because i didn't feel it as a child Mm. because i was thinking maybe this is that's interesting for me i was thinking maybe this is a common thing this is a regular thing that in this world so i didn't know that uh this war is created by some people for their own interest. Right. So I was thinking maybe maybe this is part of natural life right. with rockets and bombs. Wow. And, and did you think of the Russians as the enemy? I couldn't feel it those times. Yeah. I was just seeing, I can say that I was seeing Russian with the tanks driving through and, mm. and the helicopters with bombs and all of that. Right. And I can also remember that um, in those times, many people had undergrounds and sometimes I can remember my grandmother taking me to the underground. So now I can feel that why she was taking me to the underground to be safe from mm. the bombs and all of that. Right. Wow. And would you have known Afghanis who were fighting against the Russians? Yes. Especially the area that I come from. It's famous for having local militias as Mujahideens. Mm -hmm. And they fought against Russia for... Uh, nearly 15 years they claim kind of victory still mm -hmm. and they are very respected in the society as kind of heroes that kicked Russians out of mm -hmm. Afghanistan but if you ask me do you like them I would say no because they have really abused for having that identity of being heroes of the war against Russia because if if you if you go to any governmental departments, they are the governors, they are the district governors, they are the mayors, they are the, oh. their sons are the head of this committee, that committee, and, and all of that. So fighting against Russia and then getting wealth and... Right, okay. And, and were, they, were the Mujahideen different to the Taliban? From one perspective, they have shared values. Right. When they kill human beings... I think Taliban killed human beings for no reason. The um, Mujahideen killed many people saying that you have a shaved beard and you're wearing trousers while you're not wearing local kind of traditional clothes. And many people were kind of killed for having spoken to someone with trousers yeah. saying that maybe you are a spy of the government. So to me, all these Taliban, Mujahideen, ISIS, Daesh, yeah. They are all the same thing. Okay. So, but one claims victory against Russia, one claims victory against America, one claims victory against Britain. To me, all of them are killers. I'd say. Right. Listening to it, it sounds very scary to me as a as a society that you'd be kind of nervous or anxious about who you're talking to or who you, is is that how it was? Of course, yeah. Now it has changed. Yeah. You can speak, especially last seventeen years. Of American invasion was somehow positive from some aspects uh -huh. but I think speaking even to someone was a crime there was a law in Afghanistan that if you if you were a group of four more than four you should have been investigated and persecuted for that reason Wow. so how, how, how did schools work when I started the school the, Fortunately, in those times, there was not much influence of Mujahideen to the schools, but they were supported by the Mujahideen government. Mm. Mujahideen very soon realized their mistakes, that they shouldn't have been against the school and education. Mm. So they started establishing their own schools. When they 
kicked Russia out of Afghanistan. At that time, they destroyed the schools. They thought the schools are the places that is against teaching against their religion and faith and mm. cultures and all of that. But then they realized that, no, that's wrong. The schools are where you get um, education and you become literate mm. man or woman. So the school was fine, but I can remember of corporal punishment in those times ah. in the schools. Okay. Even if you just by accident, if you hit, if you banged on the face of another child and he was bleeding from the nose, then you would have been punished for that reason right. as well. Yeah. yeah. And I was at one time punished like that. Yeah. Yeah. So where I was growing up was very different, you know, so it was it was uh, peaceful. Yes. You know, in that sense. But I lived quite close to the Northern Irish border. So there would have been a lot of awareness and tension about that. There would have been bomb scares. And I remember when Lord Mountbatten was killed. So there was a big explosion. So I was at school, but I was involved in civil defense. So I was involved in this kind of thing. And we were kind of mobilized as part of an emergency plan for the area. So there was a whole lot of stuff around that. And a lot of my uncles and aunts would have emigrated, left Ireland and have gone to England. So they were working there. And we used to go on holidays. We'd visit them uh, throughout the summer. But again, there was a real issue or tension about being Irish. I remember my father kind of saying, just just <laughs> be careful about the accent, yeah. <laughs> you know, kind of when you're kind of going through certain places. And in the school where I went to, there was just a, an enormous amount of corporal punishment. There was, uh, so physical uh, so really brutal kind of stuff and it was the just the norm it was kind of the standard way uh, that, that we operated but for me when we shifted schools at 12 the secondary school that I went to was was uh, was great so I really liked it because in the primary school that I was in not a lot of people were interested in studying or yeah. reading it whereas in the secondary one there were and I, I just found myself with people who like reading books <laughs> Yeah. And uh, I felt much more at home there and it was much more exciting and stimulating. And also, I think that the kind of the bullying stuff that I would have experienced as a younger kid in the school, that I, I, I kind of got over it or I, I was sort of bigger in the yeah. secondary school and felt able to stand up for myself in a way that I hadn't been. I had more confidence, I think. Yeah. I think uh, in terms of bully, uh, bullying in, 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 in Afghanistan, and mm. especially in my time, the main kind of fear I had was really to being bullied by other children mm. those times. So one was emotional and physical punishment by the teachers. Mm -hmm. Even if they asked you a question and you wouldn't have answered correctly, you would have been beaten. Mm -hmm. But the other thing was whenever I was afraid that if the school closes down now, so maybe children will be uh, beat me outside. That was very common thing on the, um, uh, in, in, in that time. So Yeah. Um, again, for various reasons, we, we had kids of different ages together and the older ones would have beaten the younger ones. Same, same yeah. thing in Afghanistan. Yeah. Yes, yeah. yes. Yeah. But it has changed now. It has improved, I think, in Afghanistan. Yeah. And, and here course, as well, yeah, yeah. such that when, when my daughter goes to school now, it's, it's, a, it's a lovely school. Yes. And... And they just do all sorts of nice things, like even at Halloween, the teacher will dress up, which was an unthinkable thing that the yes. teachers would do stuff like that and have fun with the kids. does a job mean to you and how you feel about yourself? So I work as a philosophy lecturer. Uh, I teach, so I read philosophy books and I talk to people about it and I teach them about it. So I'm, I'm really, I feel really lucky at what I do because it's what I would do if I didn't have a job. Uh, it's, it's what I really like. So it, it's a kind of a, a passion if you like, or a vocation or something like that. So it seems to be the thing that I really like doing and want to do. And what makes you lucky there when you say yeah. you feel lucky? Uh, because it's very hard to get a job doing that kind of thing. 
So and of um, course that you're also helping other people. Yeah. So so the interaction bit is really important. But but I think for me the biggest motivation is that I want to know stuff and so that in a way is what drives me on. I, I keep asking questions and keep wanting to know things. And in the process if I can talk with other people and engage with them that's all the better. As I said I really enjoy what I do. I remember as a kid I was thinking about all sorts of different things that I might do. And I think always somewhere in my mind was being a teacher of some form or other. And then when I was in college, I discovered this stuff called philosophy that I really didn't know much about, but I discovered that I really liked it and that it was what I'd been doing all along. It was asking the kinds of questions that I had been asking in other ways. And so I found that I was excited about it and had an enthusiasm about it and that sometimes when I talked to other people about it, they seemed to be interested as well. Yes. Yeah, so, so, so my work gives me an enormous amount of meaning. So how about you and work? I feel proud of my work. I worked in charity sector 15 years and I think that shaped my life. Working for humanitarian sector, I think it offered some values to me, some personal values that still governs my life. For somebody growing up in a village in Afghanistan and then being so different and then being able to help probably a million people is, is a big pride and it's, uh, I, I feel really proud of connecting with the humanitarian sector. Mm-hmm. So profession-wise, I am humanitarian worker. The greatest kind of meaning it, it has for me is being able to help people. And still that, that, that value is still alive with me. Mm-hmm. So still I'm, I'm helping people mm-hmm. in any way I could. If I, I can imagine if I had not worked in the humanitarian sector and if I had not built over time these values in myself, I think I wouldn't have been in this good position that I could help many people. Okay. And how, how did you get into it? When I started working, it was more economical reason. So in those times, when I started, I was the only English speaker in the whole village. So I jumped into a role being as interpreter. But then in one year time, I, I promoted to different levels. Over one year, two years, my mind changed. So because when I joined, I joined because of a job paying me good salary. But then I changed mm-hmm. and then even when I was offered bigger jo- um, uh, money and a better job somewhere else, I didn't go because I thought I'm already doing something good for the poorest of the poor and people who deserve to be uh, helped. Because the values became stronger and stronger in, in me, seeing marginalized people and destitute people as the only targets of my life to be kind of working with. Yeah, I think I, I still go back to my experience of uh, working in humanitarian sector. Mm-hmm. And it always keep, uh, keeps me strong because mm-hmm. I remember those children and women who were displaced by war and they didn't have a shelter to spend overnight. Mm-hmm. And I was able to not sleep the whole night, but distributing blankets to the IDP camps, mm-hmm. internal displaced people's camps. So, and I was able to save lives because of designing good projects to stop flooding the houses. And so it, it keeps me strong. It, it really keeps me strong. And how, how did you get to Ireland then? How did the transition from Afghanistan? Well, part of, uh, part of my work, uh, I had to do a course in Ireland. So I came to Ireland and because of my work uh, that I had worked in toughest situations and sometimes working in conditions that my work was seen contrary to the beliefs and cultures and uh, of local people. For example, if you're implementing a women's empowerment program or education for girls program mm-hmm. uh, in rural areas, you're absolutely against their local values because they don't want women to be having a voice or mm-hmm. they don't want girls to go to school in some places. So over time, my life was becoming kind of very, very at risk. So then I had made my choice to stay this time and not go back to Afghanistan. Right. Okay. 
So when when did you come to live in Ireland then? this time? I first came to Ireland in 2012, but I went back because I didn't have really a danger to my life. Okay. And then I came for the second time to Ireland in 2016 in November. Then right. this time I didn't go back. Okay. Can you work in humanitarian work here? Yes, I am already doing some work for a humanitarian sector. I, I have been offered jobs to work in uh, humanitarian sector as well mm-hmm. in Dublin, but, uh, you know, accommodation is too difficult, so okay. I couldn't be here. But I'm in Waterford. And do, do you still get the value from the work that you do while living Of in course, yeah. yeah, yeah. Without those values, I couldn't have been myself, really. Right. Uh, like I, I earlier said uh, that I'm helping too many people from different cultures, mm-hmm. from different countries, from different places, in different ways. Mm-hmm. And do, do you have a sense of where the values, how, how did you develop the values that you have? So say, for example, if some of the more traditional people in Afghanistan have views that women shouldn't read or shouldn't go to school or stuff like that, how did you get the view that this is wrong or that we should go against that? I think the two things had major uh, influence in my ch- uh, in, in my life. Mm. One was education and awareness and the second thing was ex- exposure. Exposure to other worlds, to other mm. people, to other cultures and, and countries and, and so on. We had so many workshops and trainings and seminars and all of that. Mm. We were trained um, on human rights <coughs> values, women rights, equality, mm. gender-based violence, child protection issues and environmental issues. And so all of these trainings and then exposure to the other countries as well. I have had the chance of traveling uh, to different countries for working in the humanitarian aid sector. So all of this, I think, um, created the values and strengthened the values in me. And then I am maintaining those values. And, and, and how does all of that for you relate to Islam, if you're kind of coming from that environment? The Islam itself, as far as I know, Islam gives a very strong picture of a beautiful life hmm. in the way that these humanitarian NGOs, they try to establish in any country. Uh, promoting equality and love and respect and all of that. That is the actual meaning of Islam. But then you you always find these proxy wars and um, the fighters that they misuse the name of Islam. So mm. when we were implementing education for women, we were training local communities on Islamic values, first mm. of all. We were saying that Islam says that Education is must for men and women. Prophet Muhammad says that education is must for women and men. From the time you are in bed as a child till the time you are in bed that you are going to die. But people didn't know these values. They think that Islam is against education, Mm. against girls' education. And they even don't know that the women in the times of Prophet Muhammad worked. They were businesswomen. They were working. They were doing everything like men. I think there is no reason, there is no there is no proof and there is no reason that actual Islam could be a restriction or a threat to all of these good things like equality, justice right. and all of that. And, and it's really interesting that because you've experienced the bad use of Islam, I suppose, between the Mujahideen and yeah. the Taliban, kind of so that, that uh, you see that it's completely compatible with the... Uh, kind of an emancipatory or a positive kind of way of being yeah yeah that's right yeah yeah, yeah. I, I myself if you asked me this question I refer these people who are fighting and killing people I refer them as not real human beings they're wild killing animals mm. they don't the killers don't belong to any religion and this especially this Mujahideen and the Taliban and all of them. My own knowledge about them is that they are not Muslims. They are against Muslims. If you see Afghanistan, 
on average every month at least six mosques are being exploded mm. so and each mosque then at, at least 30 40 people die mm. so if the Taliban if they were Muslims if they were following Islam mm. why they have to be against the Muslims the worshippers I, I, I have very bad experience of these people claiming that they are mm. Muslims and th they are helping Islam right there's an American woman writer that I like called Catherine Norris. So she's she's written about Dakota, this country part of America. She's from New York and she traveled to this place. So she wrote a book about the place. And then it turned out that she got friendly with some monks in a monastery kind of nearby. And she wrote about that. And the books were popular. So she was uh, being brought to a radio station to be interviewed about it. And she was being described as a religious writer. And she said, no, I don't want to be called that. And the person said, well, why not? And she said, because so many of the religious people I know are jerks. The, the religious people are unpleasant. Yeah, yeah, yeah. She just didn't like the label. But she espoused a lot of the values and kind of thought that the values were a good thing. But sometimes the people who are officially representing or taking the name and using it are kind of subverting what the thing seems to be about. That's true. What role does friendship play in your life? It's very important. And I think there are different kinds of friendship in different ways. So so I suppose the friendship in my family is the first place, you know, so with my wife and my daughter. And then I have my mother and sister are, are alive. My relationship with all of those is really important. And then beyond that, I have, I have some friends. So I have a, a small number of close friends that I would know for a long time, for over 30 years. So just interacting and talking. And I think shared history is kind of important as well. So we've just been through lots of different things and remember things. That's important. And also in work. So just working with people, we make friendships and connect. And often when there's a, a common project or something that we're doing together, and in fact, a lot of the friends that I have, it's we, we, we came to be friends by doing things together. We were kind of working together at different kinds of things. Have you experienced anything bad in friendship? So I have one friend who stopped being a friend and it was very upsetting because I couldn't really figure out why. Afterwards, well, so there was a way I think where his father had stopped talking to him at a certain point and he kind of did the same to me. At a certain kind of way, without an obvious reason, but I found it very upsetting, and and I think what was upsetting about it was that I felt powerless. I, I couldn't do anything about it. What what do you what do you think about what what are the important values one has to have in friendship? I think for me, it's it's trusting the person that I'm dealing with. And what do you expect from your friend? What yeah. values do you must have? <clears throat> so trusting, they should trust you. Yeah. And, and so it's not that we agree about everything, but I think that we're straight with each other and honest with each other. And in fact, one of my best friends, we argue a lot we, uh, and it's very enjoyable. I think that I, I know that they care for me and I know that they're there to support and help me if I need it. So I think that's really important. Okay. Yeah. Good. So how about you? I think uh, friendship for me has been health and wealth. Ah. Like you said, the first thing, I think mm. family friendship is very, very good. And the same time, if you have uh, friends everywhere, it keeps you, I think, kind of happy mm. in life. And also talking to your friend and playing with friend is connected to your mental health as well. Friendship is also a wealth. In many situations, very rich man or woman, uh, has been in in a situation that could uh, couldn't help herself or himself, but their friends were able to help that person. For example, you can have a hundred thousand euro in your bag and have no friend, mm. and next hour you can be robbed by someone, and you have no friend and you will be nowhere and and nobody will be helping you. Mm. But if you have a friend, you can just it's a matter of phone call. 
and they can help you. So I I think um, honesty, like you said, is very important in friendship. And I think I sometimes people make friendship because of expectations that they have, mm-hmm. expectations to be employed somewhere, expectations to be given something, or unnecessarily uh, having expectations which is which you cannot meet. And I think that's bad. So I I think when people uh, make friendships, like I expect my friends, if they want to make a friendship with me, they should relate to me as a human being. And they should relate to me as kind of having common values. And Mm. like you said, they should be able to talk and they should be able to argue and they should be able to learn and criticize one another and find better logics and reasons for different things and issues. That is the friendship that I Mm. think is ideal. And have you been able to make friends in Ireland? Fortunately, yes. And and do you notice a difference between your Afghani friends and your Irish friends? I think so, yes, because <clears throat> an Irish friend is really the way I, I expect a friendship. But then from Afghanistan perspective, because I was working in a senior level job, so many of friends I would have made over the meetings and trainings and so on, they would have been to expect jobs and employment right so whenever they were showing up for an interview and when i was not considering them for the job next day they would have gone and spoken against me that the interview was not transparent yeah and they would have expected me to appoint them so i i I couldn't appoint them so irish friends they wouldn't do that Mm. even when i ask my irish friends for helping me, the maximum help they could do is to connect me with the employer mm-hmm. and sharing my CV. Mm-hmm. And then they say, rest is your job. So I I expect my friends to do the same. To, uh, if they want to mm-hmm. expect something from me, they should do the same. They, just, they should say, okay, share my CV with that company mm-hmm. if you have any connections. And then I will prove if I'm right or wrong person. But I can understand because they're coming from a country which is poor and conflict affected and war affected. and So things are different. But I think Irish friends are good. And, and the question you asked me about, did you ever experience any difficult or harmful stuff with friends? I did. Uh, I think I can give you one example. A friend of mine came and he said uh, he wants to go to another province within Afghanistan, but he doesn't have a car. And he said, can I borrow your car? I said, "Okay, yes, yeah, why not? Uh, And then I gave my car and then I called him after a week. Mm. And the first thing he said that, what car do you mean? What you're talking about? I said, you're joking with me. I'm speaking about my car. So then he he never came back. And he was gone. And that was very hard. I think that was very bad experience. Mm. Right. That somebody takes your car and never comes back. Right. Wow. And it was very good of you to give the car. Yeah. Yeah. So. Yeah. Wow. So from what you're describing in Afghanistan, where your 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 job and your role was kind of senior and there were people coming looking for jobs from you. So it, it sort of sounds like it's different here in Ireland at the moment. And how, how is that transition, that change? Or that? I think it's, uh, well, I have, been, I have been able to help, like I said, maybe a million people I have helped mm. in my previous role. And even when I am here, I'm helping many, many people. Mm. Like still many people come to me, they, they say, do you mind uh, making a CV for me? Mm. And I think that's the easiest thing I could do for someone. Right. So I can make them a CV. It's a big thing if you are helping someone who has no education and they have never been to school and they have never been able to write in English. So you're writing a CV for them. Or somebody has an appointment with GP mm. and they don't understand the GP. If you just walk with them to the GP and help them. Or somebody has an interview in entry office, social department, 
and they don't understand why their benefits are cut. So they need someone to help them. Only I would say it's different way of helping here. But otherwise, I'm the same person. I'm, I'm helping. I'm helping still people. And, and the people that you're helping at the moment are from all different nationalities. Different nationalities. Yeah. From Africa, from Arabic countries, from Asian countries. You would not expect people coming from different countries that even they have their own uh, local people. But still they approach me. Right. And, and what's, what's it like for you living in Ireland at the moment? I think this is the best part of my life after those peaceful years of Afghanistan in the job. Right. So first was the beautiful part of my life was when I was with my whole family. The, there was peace. There was job. I was being able to help people and write proposals up to four million euro mm. per annum and getting those money and spending it for the good cause. So that was very beautiful part mm. of life. But then after that, I felt that I was somehow socially, emotionally and physically abused because of being on the front line, helping everybody, mm. especially on behalf of the Western world. Then my life, I realized that I'm not really enjoying it. I didn't have peace. So now I'm finding it back. So I think after that transition, I think I'm just getting back my beautiful life. Yeah. Now, it's about hobbies. Have your interests changed over the course of your life? Not really, I think. So I've always been interested in reading, and I do a lot of that. I've always been interested in music, uh, and I do a lot of that as well. So I, I listen to music a lot, and I play music, so I play instruments. Just on the way here, I bought music for my daughter, so she's playing piano. And, uh, and partly what I'm doing at the moment is I'm teaching her as well, which is the first time I've done that. Uh, and that's kind of really, really interesting. I, I have no interest whatsoever in sport. And uh, I never had, and neither did my father. And so what's really funny is my brother-in-law has a big interest in all sorts of sport, and he talks to me a lot about it, and I say I have no interest, and he <laughs> just is happy to talk to me. So I, I like nature as well. Uh, so where I was born was near the sea, and where I live is near the sea, uh, and so I like getting access to the sea. And at the moment I have a garden that I really like, and there's lots of... There's lots of fruit appearing at the moment. So wow. the berries and the apples are coming out and there's lots of flowers. So just doing simple things like protecting them from the birds or watering Very them. Good, yeah. yeah, so I like all that stuff. I think when you speak about yourself, uh, your hobbies, I thought mm. you were speaking of mine ah. <laughs> because they are 100% the same. Okay. I love reading. Like mm. I said, I, I like mm. dictionaries. Mm. Uh, there are a couple of books that I like. I'm very interested to know more about religions as well. Mm. I read Bible, I read Quran, and okay. um, but but I love dictionaries because I like languages. I I built my language skills. Uh, so reading is part of my and I like I like to know about Ireland more. So I'm reading a couple of books about mm. Ireland. So reading has been a very strong part of my life, and doing agriculture and horticulture is mm. also biggest part of my hobbies and I have uh, strawberries now grown up okay. uh, I have many vegetables that you wouldn't imagine in a very small piece of land I have right. and uh, there's one thing that I like is yoga huh. it's, it's it's like meditation and praying mm. but more by breathing and by doing some physical movements as well. I, I like that. That's that's one of the things I never want to give up because anytime I feel a little bit depressed or mm. down, I do some yoga exercises and it keeps me uh, strong again. I, I love walking in the woods mm. and nature. I love rain. I have said this before. I like the smell of rain. I, I like the sound of it. I like the, the the way it drops on the ground. And I can, especially if, if you're under a tree, 
it falls on the leaves and then seeps down through the roots mm-hmm. of the tree. So I, I love really watching the rain and from the window or going uh, into the rain or smelling the, the smell of, you know, rain. So I, I think that's, that's my hobbies in general and, and they have never changed. Mm. I liked nature from the childhood. I still love it. I liked rain from the childhood, still I do. I loved reading and writing, still I do. And I think the only thing, yoga was something I just picked up later in the mm. life cycle. So I only started doing yoga in 2010. That's the new thing in, in my life. Right. So I have a, a big interest in different religious traditions as well. So it's part of what I teach is looking at, at, at those things. And I guess one of the things that I was always interested in with Islam was the tradition of using your body in prayer so people would stand or kneel or yes. sit or you know so it was a very physical kind of thing <laughs> that's usually all the movements within the Islamic prayer is the yoga right in the yoga yeah the only thing in yoga is that it's a controlled breathing but otherwise it's exactly like doing yoga so everybody else in my family does yoga except me. Okay. <laughs> so, so, so I never kind of really connected with it, but I certainly did do some meditation practice. Yeah. And that seems to really help, helps well-being. But I think it also helps just kind of connecting with nature. There's, there's a way in which you can be attentive and present to the stuff that's there rather than just being caught up in thinking. Yeah. So how many, what languages do you, do you have then? I speak my native language, which is Dari. Okay. And then I knew very well Farsi as well. Farsi is the language of Iran. Yes. So I have been able to pick different words. It's not much different with my native right. language, Dari. Yeah. But they have n- new words for different things. Right. So I speak Uzbek. Right. I speak Pashto. And I speak a little bit Arabic as well. Uh, I speak Urdu, which is India or yeah. Indian language, Pakistan language, and then English. So that's right. And I, I'm really interested uh, about Irish language. Okay. So I could say Kanasatatu, I could say <laughs> Gaurav Mahagat. <laughs> so a couple of words I could say. Great. Yeah. yeah. And, and do you have dictionaries for all these different languages? I do. Farsi yeah. and Urdu. And, yeah. I, I don't have for Urdu, but I have for Irish, the Gaelic, and then I have Arabic, and I have English. Tell me about philosophy of life. What makes you happy? So I think it's some of the stuff I was talking to you about earlier. So I think being with my family and being in my garden, those two things in particular make me really happy. I, I really enjoy teaching as well. So often if, if I'm just kind of immersed in a class and I, I can get excited kind of talking with the students and like that, and playing music. Very good. Yeah. And you said about family. And how long you think that friendship or happiness could continue in, a, in, in, in your family, especially that we are living in developed world and the families yeah. are not so much strong in a way. They don't have stronger ties, you know? Yeah. Because I'm just worried. Yeah. That, uh, so family is a very important thing for you because that keeps you happy. Yeah. So... I'm wondering what you are doing to keep the family together for our life. Ah. I think it doesn't happen naturally. You know, it doesn't happen without work. So, okay. so it's a bit like a garden. It, it, yes. it, it, needs, <laughs> it needs attention. And, and maybe one of the bits as well that's kind of, kind of significant or interesting is that I, I didn't become a parent until I was older. Okay. So I was 40-something when my daughter was born and up to then I had no 
big interest in you know and it was a complete revelation to me just right. to the change it's a change it's yeah a good change yeah i think in a way it significantly changed my values Very yeah just good. saying this this is really good and important and it's kind of um tangible it's, it's yes. just immediate and real yeah so for you uh what, for what me what what makes me happy yeah. is again family mm. that is the biggest part and then uh, of course the nature if i am very depressed if i go out to the window and watch that the rain is falling mm. on the ground and especially if i open the window and smell it then and hear the sound of it that itself is to me a meditation mm. without doing anything else and third thing which i feel so happy if i whenever i read something good happening anywhere in the world mm. say if they are saying that there will be a power plant uh, built over this river that will give electricity to a hundred thousand families i feel so happy uh, when i was in afghanistan i went to a gp and i was talking about some of my fears that i had uh, globally and he was saying it's better you don't worry about the world but I really worry about the world I was in Afghanistan but I was caring about the whole world I was saying that this world should be protected this there should be more unity and friendship I, I can give you a very good example of the leader of Al-Azhar mosque and the Pope Francis they signed an agreement recently last month to respect Islam and Christianity to build on common values and they should love and respect each other and uh, build friendship and, and and the fact that they are Abrahamic religion and, and all of that and they should be kind of united and there should be peace and solidarity and unity and oneness. Mm. I was so delighted because I practically speaking most of the violence in this world from now on before is linked to some kind of religious mm. so if some people are especially in those positions mm. of the society coming forward and doing something about it it makes me happy mm. so peace unity globally is the third thing after my family and my personal life and connectivity with nature mm -hmm. is the third thing that makes me happy wow and and how do you because you know, often if you look at the news, it can be really depressing. You know, you're just looking at bad stuff. So, so how, do you, how do you manage or how do you filter out the, the, the bad stuff? I always feel that those people who talk against the people's uh, unity and solidarity and the stronger values, which is humanity, those people are sick people and they are in minority. Because as a human being, we have everything in common. We speak, we eat, we can smell, we can see, and we can enjoy, we can love, we can... Everything is the same. So, and we were born first, not, not religions. And that's why how I approach my friends. I look first at them as, as the human being. And even if somebody had no religion, and that's how I connect without any problem. Because I, I, can, I have already shared values, which they are human beings. I just feel that negative people are only in minority and probably they are mentally sick and they should be treated by awareness and education. The conversation came to a natural end and before revealing the reason why I had paired them, I asked Hamayun and Paul what they felt they had in common. Especially the questions about what friendship meant and hobbies and philosophy of life and what makes me happy I think everything was we had was in common and yeah. I think it's just a re reflection of one person that you never been asked these questions but you knew that this is you but you never spoke on behalf of yourself I think mm. that was interesting for me probably so I think reading was one thing, so both yes. of us like, like reading, but also it's kind of serious reading, connected with values and with helping people. Yes. I think that's there. I think also there's the connection with nature and getting support from that. And I think also something in the 
meditation, paying attention kind yes. of territory as well seem to be kind of common. I had written down on a piece of paper in an envelope what I thought Homiyun and Paul had in common. Throughout the conversation, they had discovered far more that they shared, but they hadn't directly guessed the original reason I had paired them. But in a way, it was one of the main themes of the whole conversation. It is something that many Irish people have in common with those coming to Ireland from the developing world. Right, that's very, yeah. You both grew up in the countryside in a way of life that no longer exists there. That's true. Yeah. And I, and I think both of us are connecting to the countryside <laughs> yes. in our own ways. Yeah. Uh, and, and in some ways carrying parts of that way of life onwards, you know, kind of the bits that we found good or useful. I'm reading a book, Vanishing Ireland. Ah. Uh, it speaks it's about... It's a big, it's yeah, it's a yeah, big... Yeah, 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 yeah. yeah. With some pictures, pictures of yeah. very senior citizens yeah. and that. And uh, when I read that, I connect to my own village. Okay. It really it takes me back to where I was grown up. Mm. But unfortunately, it's changing now. Mm. I think I, I wish we, we were able to live the life which existed before. Mm. But not, of course, like when I spoke about the war and conflicts, yeah. not that. Yeah. But when I spoke about the sweetest grapes in the world yes. and yeah, yeah. berries and the trees and the birds singing and all of that. And the family, uncles, grandmother, aunts, all of those people, you know, around you. What Hamiyun and Paul have in common is what all of us actually experience. Although the places where they grew up were transformed by very particular and different forces, war in Afghanistan and modernization in Ireland, all of us, in one way or another, grow up in a place and time that no longer exists. As individuals, we have little control over how our societies change, what is lost and what is gained. But we remain shaped by this lost world, by what we choose to hold on to, what we can let go of, and our memories of what used to be. Still I can feel it sometimes, mm. especially when I close my eyes to give myself some kind of peace, I can straight away go into those childhood moments. Hamayoun was granted refugee status in Ireland in 2017. He has been joined by his wife and four children who are learning English and Irish. Hamayoun is hoping to become a humanitarian or community development worker here. He says of his life at present, I am just getting back my beautiful life. This podcast was funded by the Equality Fund at Trinity College Dublin. It was produced by Michelle Darcy and the assistant producer is Iman Aboud. Thanks to all the participants and to Gizem Arakan, Clara Chan, Kay Michael Cahill and Matthew Darcy, Claire Devlin, Olive Donnelly, Neve Hardiman, Jacqueline Hayden, Lisa Keenan, Liam Neefsey, Andy Pollock, Sorsha Pollock, Michelle Redmond, Peter Stone and Heidi Wankading. The graphic design is by Clara Chan and the music is by Macrophone. Thank you so much for listening.